0: Hi, this is Panel Beater, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Facebook page. We've got Dr. Sharma, we've got Dr. Dilemma and myself, Panel Beater. Good morning to you both. Top of the morning. Can you hear us, Dr Sharma, coming in on Skype?
1: Loud and clear.
0: Did you hear all of that? I realised you may have uh, been uh, mute to that.
1: No, no, I am. Yet. <laughs> that- you are audible. I am <laughs> hearing your beautiful baritone this Sunday morning. <laughs> and, uh, he's, he's already improving spirit. Uh,
0: you say all the right <laughs> things. Yeah. Um, good to see you both. And, of course, uh, conspicuous by his absence is Dr Neo, who's... Mm. Traversing uh, the land of the rising sun.
2: That's right. Yes, yeah, pretty jealous right now. He's
0: digging into some ramen. I bet <laughs>
2: in Mount
1: Fuji. I,
0: I hope he's doing all right. Um, health and well-being, Doctor Sharma. You got an update on your hip?
1: Uh, it, let's say it's stable. Uh, it's certainly improved, um, but you know we're in this fascinating situation. Where will this eight months of chronic hip pain end up? And it is a fascinating, panel leader being on the other side yeah. of, uh, of this ongoing medical issue where it's kind of a diagnosis, but not really sure. And I'll tell you what, uh, adherence to physiotherapy programs, uh, it is not to be underestimated <laughs> how tough it is to really stick to stick to these things. So I've resolved last time that I'll really stick to my uh, physio regime, do the exercises three times a day. I'd love to say I've been doing that much, but you know, one, one and a half times a day. But you've got to have the attitude that even you know, something is better than nothing. You know, can't be all or nothing with these things. And uh, the physios have been uh, very empathetic with my uh, dubious partial compliance.
2: Yeah. Do as I say, not as I do. How do you
1: rate yourself?
0: <laughs> How do you rate yourself as a patient?
1: I'd give myself a oh, I'll, I'll give myself a solid out, <laughs> seven, 6 out of 10. But, you know, I, I say that tentatively because I don't want patients to think that you know, we, we kind of rate them, so to speak. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, but in terms of you know, my my end of the bargain, so to speak, oh, i give it a 6 and 7 out of 10. But um, I've got a great relationship with my physiotherapist. We have some very realistic outcomes where, you know, He's very honest. I'm very honest, uh, and yeah, that is it's, it's such a pillar on which uh, the, these relationships are, are built. Yeah. Uh, that you know that neither person is really kind of holding back from what they're thinking, and if, if either one of us change our mind, we'll communicate that. Um, so, yeah, truly, a new appreciation for the doctor-patient, uh, the, the medical patient dynamic that I don't think really I had before.
0: Nice one, nice one.
1: Um, I was just. How to- you been?
0: Oh, I've, I've been around. I think I mentioned to you um The last, mystery
1: illness. The yes. mystery What's illness. What's been happening there?
0: I thought I had the plague and then I did all the tests and everything and, and I didn't. Um, but the, it's been hanging around and I've still got some trailing symptoms, which are, you know... I a novel in one sense and and but I saw the look on Emma, Dr Dilemma's face a moment ago when I told her about I've still got um, tingling sensations in my peripheries so um, how am I doing guys is it
1: <laughs> is a last this shout is, hey this is not a consultation this is yeah. not <laughs> medical care yeah, that's um right. But, but I, wanna, I do want to ask you know you've clearly got symptoms that you, you can't quite explain yeah and um, you know you uh, but clearly something's holding you back from from going going seeing uh seeing a doctor yeah. as we know there's lots of barriers yeah what's it like for you at the moment yeah is it on your mind that oh, I know I should see them or are you kind of like no I should wait until I know it's not going to go away by itself or serious enough. What's going on there?
0: Yeah, that's a fabulous question. I'd, I'd be lying if I said no, I haven't, you know, sat down with myself and given myself a good, hard talking to about this one. I th- mm. there's, there's probably a few things. Like, I, I'm, I'm pretty averse to that kind of action <laughs> at the best of times. Like, um, I'm averse to going to the doctor in the first place. Um, but I think on this occasion, I'm I'm thinking that I've got a whole bunch of other things going on for me that I'm thinking, you know, if I can just sort that out, then that probably will get rid of this.
1: <laughs> right, right.
0: Is that too cryptic? I don't know. But, uh, yeah, it just feels like, you know... Um, you know uh, yeah it may be a few other behaviors and a few other issues going on that if i can just just get on top of that then then the rest of the physical health will take care of itself
1: right right and, and it's almost like because those things that you do want to manage that are hopefully going to flow on here that sounds like those are kind of you things to sort out and not necessarily something that you can kind of sort out with a prescription for a doctor necessarily
0: yeah that's what i'm telling myself well done dr sharma <laughs> is that, is He's that, done this tri- <laughs> Go on. What were you going to say? Is, is...
1: Uh, it's it's, tri- it's tricky stuff, isn't it? Well, it's not as simple as you know. If you've got a medical problem, go see a doctor. Like yeah. I know that's what we're taught to say, and that's what everyone's trained to to kind of hear from doctors. But there are all these barriers, not just logistical or financial ones, or you know, or, or, you know trying to actually kind of get it important, but all these other kind of cognitive issues, and, and sometimes no, you, you probably shouldn't just reflexively go see a doctor straight away. Sometimes it probably doesn't make sense to to try a few things you know, at your, your, yourself. Yeah, but it's but it is interesting that even when those things don't work, then you kind of amble into the doctor uh, with not just a set of symptoms, but with the weight of going and I've tried all these things and it hasn't probably worked. Yeah. Uh, so, so now help me, doctor. And uh, it, it's it's fascinating how you, you walk in the door then with not just a set of symptoms, but quite a little <laughs> history of how you've managed or failed to manage this thing.
0: Yeah. T- taking the spotlight off myself for a second, it does point, to, though, to a, a, a grander issue we've spoken about a few times before, which is, you know, people delaying attention to routine stuff, you know, so whether that be mammograms or whether that be... Um, uh, bowel um checks, yeah, cancer yeah. screening. Um and the in the list you know, people who see a sunspot on their skin and they go, Oh, it's winter now, wait till next summer and see how I'm feeling. You know, all those kind of delay mechanisms that people do with what should really be routine and instinctive engagement with um their GP,
1: right? Yeah, absolutely. It's it should be routine, but as we've covered there's so much more complexity to mm-hmm. it. Yeah. 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 How about you,
0: Emma? Oh, Dr. Dilemma, I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> um, touchwood, um, nothing, nothing? nothing to complain about. Nothing to complain about. Health
0: and well-being, all yeah, good. Oh,
2: touchwood,
1: touchwood. What are you doing here then? What's will that <laughs> <laughs> I am <can't laughs> commiserating. Sorry. You're sorry. talking
0: <laughs> war stories. You're young and fit and healthy. Uh, Dr. Sherman goes out and gets Spritely. a hip. Yeah, I go out and get tingles. What? What have I
2: got uh, this month? Have
0: you had a sniffle or anything? No, no. No, Not so So, much as a sniffle. I can pretend if you'd like. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's really good news. No, no news is good news, I think. No news is very good news. Okay, what's uh, coming up on the show? Um, Let's work backwards. Our second guest, Dr Dilemma.
2: I'm very excited that we have secured a very special guest for uh, the second part of our show today. We're going to be speaking with Professor Danielle Matzer. Uh, She'll be joining us um, later this morning to talk all things uh, reproductive and women's health, um, particularly with a focus in the general practice space as well. So that will be a great chat. That's Um, on the
0: back of a Senate inquiry, right?
2: That's right, yeah, recently, um, recent Senate inquiry and um, lots of talk in the media and um, medical space. So it would be great to get um, Professor Matz's perspectives and expertise on, on some of these things.
0: Yeah, it really will. Really will. Looking forward to that one. Um, our first guest that we'll be getting on the line very shortly is uh, Dr. Diana Vitus, um who's a psychology and more specifically music psychology researcher and uh, caught our attention with some research she's been involved with uh, leading, in fact, um, recently in regards to the use of music and study and learning. Um, and I guess each in our own way have got a relationship with using music when we want to focus or when we're trying to learn something or we're trying to regulate our emotions or so on. Um, Dr Lemma, before the show you were saying how you've got very specific rules for yourself about well using yeah. music when you study or something
2: yeah, like that. Yeah, well, I, I I find I can't listen to things take things in as well if I'm listening to music that has lyrics. So as my general kind of rule, if I'm studying or reading I I like a bit of instrumental background but... um Personally, I think I get a bit too distracted and stuff. We'll bit of Beethoven fifth. Yeah, we, <laughs> a bit of both. Have you tried the, those low fi
1: beats? Yes, yes. They go for ten hours. Yes,
2: and the, and the cat sleeping on the desk, f- um, and they go for ten <laughs> hours on endless repeat. I find yes, that cat's that tail
0: wagging very, very hypnotic. Sooty.
2: Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. That is absolutely my study anthem, and less so. Taylor Swift or things that I might start
1: singing along to. If I, it's, it's, ma- it's making quite the comeback. Uh, in fact, there's, there's tracks by an artist who's you know passed away many years ago, New Jabez, who's, who's kind of uh, music is now being used on a lot of uh, TikTok, Instagram Reels, uh, and it's this kind of lo-fi beats-based um, uh, music that's so kind of good for study. So yeah, I want to hear all about the science of why, why the stuff I listen to is going to make me smarter potentially. Brilliant. So,
0: well, let's, uh, without further ado, take a couple of sponsor announcements uh, and get uh, Dr. Vitus on the line for that discussion.
3: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au.
0: We're very pleased to have on the show, joining us right now uh, on the telephone, uh, Dr. Diana Vidas, who is a music psychology researcher and interested in how we use, how and why we use music in our daily lives. Uh, Diana's uh, work uh, has been at Goldsmiths College, University of London, and recently finished a PhD in psychology at the University of Queensland. Uh, her PhD investigated the benefits of music listening for students, focusing on music for well-being, emotions and studies. Uh, is now at the University of Melbourne as a postdoctoral researcher working on a team that's developing an app to train carers of people with dementia to use music for care. Um, her research examines the intersection of music, technology, emotion and psychology. Welcome to Radiotherapy, Dr Vitus.
4: Morning, morning. Thank you for having
0: me. <laughs> oh, it's really wonderful to have you on. Um, and I think we've got a lot to talk about here. Let's, uh, before we get into the recent studies that caught our attention about students and studying and learning and um, the use of music, tell us what is a day in the life of a music psychologist?
4: Um, mostly uh, a lot of reading, um, which is my first part for sure. Um, so, you know, pop on some music, read some studies, um, try and write some papers with uh, varying degrees of success depending on uh, the day, how much coffee I've had, etc. cetera. Um, and, yeah, I do lots of... Um, I, I do quantitative and qualitative research, so um, lots of data analysis, all that kind of stuff.
0: So it was a bit of a trick question. So I was looking for that coffee question and that music, whether you have music on while you work question, <laughs> Dr. Veyer. So um, how do you, uh, you know disaggregate for yourself the difference in your lived experience the difference between coffee in your work at your work day and music in your work day uh it
4: depends on whether i'm in the office if i have a coffee or not (laughs) um whereas i always have music on in the background
0: right 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 um and and so you we, we getting into psychology which came first for you an interest in psychology or an interest in music
4: definitely music. Um, I was always the kid who played all the different instruments, not very well. Um, And always uh, was, you know, could not pull the earphone out of my ear, Um, always listening to music. And then I went to go study psychology at UQ and then discovered that actually there was a place for intersecting those two, yeah, right. uh, so, and then um, went into honours and was lucky enough to find um, two amazing supervisors who then kind of guided me through honours and, uh, and then my PhD as well, so uh, Dr Nicole Nelson and um, Professor Genevieve Dingle.
0: When did, when did music uh, start getting attention in psychology research? Is it it's always a... been a in part of it or is it relatively new?
4: Surprisingly old field, Um, but I think the like real research interest has picked up in um, I'm going to say the past like twenty or thirty years, which may be a little bit off. um, But that's when I think the like burst of research definitely kind of started.
0: Yeah, right. It it occurs to me that um, as I. was reading your bio there, you know, the intersection of music and technology. I guess our exposure to music, you know, has changed over time. From once upon a time, the only time you heard it was when it was live and then maybe moved to transistor radio and, and of course, the evolution through uh, into digital and all mobile devices. So that's probably a quite a feature and a factor in how people relate to using music in their life, right?
4: Yeah, absolutely. That's that's pretty much where I want to go next. And now that I've kind of uh, gone into this new new field and new job, um, so kind of building on what I've done before, um, I'm really interested in. Yeah, because it's it's the, the change in technology from yeah everything radio, obviously super important. But then you know records, CDs, cassettes, and then streaming makes such a huge difference in how we access music and how we uh, enjoy music and our ability to listen to music anywhere. You know,
0: Dr. Lema.
2: Dr. Vidas, it's a dilemma here. It's so awesome to have Hi. you on radiotherapy this morning. Thanks for coming in. Um, I was wanting to hear a bit more about your recently completed PhD um, and the studies um, that went into that. What, what was the overall um, focus of, of your PhD thesis?
4: Yeah, so um, main focus was essentially looking at the benefits of music listening, so across this kind of emotion, well-being and studying, um, because my specific focus was to I really wanted to know how music could be useful for students. Um, You know, we know that um, students are really stressed when they um, start university and it's quite a stressful time, but probably not everyone needs therapy to cope with all of that. They probably just need um, a little bit of help and support to capitalise on, like, their existing coping strategies. Um, And so that's how I kind of came into it, was did a couple of early studies looking at, okay, well, is music an effective coping strategy? My interest, and in that's hoping to find, um, and it was. It was helpful both during COVID and before COVID, um, and then kind of wanting to build on that with again sort of one study, one substance what study was more focused on the sort of well-being and emotions aspect, and one focusing on this study aspect.
2: To touch more on the study aspect, which. Um Uh, I I, I found really interesting. Um, um, Could you speak more to what did you actually look at? How did the study work um, in looking at um, music and and study and um, what the outcomes of of that that particular aspect of the research was?
4: Yeah, so um, it was an experiment. Um, Basically, I recruited people who at least sometimes, listen to music while they study um, and kind of randomly assigned them to one of three different conditions. So um, one group um, had to listen to their own selected music, um, one group listened to sort of cafe coffee shop sounds, uh, and one group had silence. And then they did a reading test, so they read uh, a text and then did some multiple-choice questions. Um and basically what we found was that music had no detrimental impact on reading. So across all of the three conditions, um, everyone scored pretty similarly, no difference. Um, and then I kind of followed up with study a subsequent bit looking at the specific music that people were listening to while they studied. Um, you can kind of scrape Spotify's back end, and that's what I did. Um, and found there wasn't really any difference. Um, you know, it didn't matter what people were listening to. Um, the, the tagline has been sort of Mozart to Fleetwood Mac. Um, <laughs> it doesn't matter what people are listening to. They are still kind of were scoring pretty similarly on so. what, what,
0: what That's fascinating. What might explain why it doesn't make a difference to what people are listening to? I'm, I'm vaguely aware of a concept called the Mozart effect where there's some suggestion that certain kind of music connects with our wiring in a particular way for focus but uh, this seems to indicate that that's not the case
4: yeah so the Mozart effect um that was like a whole uh whole range of studies sort of um in the 90s and yeah they found this effect where if people were listening to Mozart um they would be it was it was spatial reasoning specifically um so sort of like like mental rotation mental folding kind of task um and in that study, they found effects on that, but a lot of the subsequent work has kind of shown that that may not be the case, and it's also a lot more complicated. And it really, you know, that it might depend on the task, it on what you're listening to, all of those
0: kinds of things. Um, and and so there's some association. Oh, sorry, just before I go there, and the other variable in that little equation would be whether that people are reading something that they're familiar with or something that's new to them, right?
4: Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I had people reading... Well, they were first-year psychology students, as is the standard... um, (laughs)
0: uh, A (laughs) well-examined cohort in psychology studies.
4: Yeah. Yeah. um, Getting them to read, uh, basically, like a textbook excerpt about the history of psychology. Um, So, not familiar, but at least, hopefully, of vague interest to them, given they were studying psychology. Um, so, yeah, I think that also definitely plays a role as
1: well.
2: Have, have similar studies taken place looking at um, rather than just reading comprehension but studying other types of tasks such as mathematics or, or learning a foreign language, those kinds of different studies? Uh,
4: yeah, study? there's such a huge range of research in this area and, again, i focused on reading comprehension because I felt like that was most relevant to students but absolutely, there's, like, so much other stuff that, um, you know music might be helpful in all of these different situations or it might not be. Um, And think the problem that I was finding as I was reading it is it's really mixed in terms of what people are finding and it's really hard to know then what
1: you should or shouldn't necessarily be doing, you know? Dr Sharma. So, Dr Vitus, I mean, it sounds like, from what you're saying, and I hate to kind of generalise here, and I'm sure it's much more nuanced, that uh, listening to music or, you know, cafe ambient sound or nothing at all, didn't really seem to alter comprehension It's good at least from your study it seems like well it's certainly not distracting um do you suspect there are other dimensions that did improve for the music group uh, as compared to the ones who are uh, not accessing music
4: yeah definitely so that was kind of the other part of the study was looking at um how it impacted on um emotions so that's actually probably i should have mentioned earlier with the mozart effects that what they subsequent research kind of ended up finding was it wasn't that I was making you facial reasoning but rather listening to a sort of upbeat pleasurable nice piece of music was kind of putting you in a better mood and that was what was um, causing you to score better um, so here I didn't find any difference in this reading comprehension um, focus but um, I did find that um, the the participants in the sort of Silence and space uh, sounds conditions. They were kind of, they were a drop in how positive they were feeling. I mean, I guess you know, I'm giving them something super interesting to read potentially. Um, but the music group didn't have that drop. Um, they kind of maintained how positive they were feeling. But I think where it is, it's not that you know music could be distracting. It depends on who you are all of these different factors. But it put you in a better mood.
1: And, and surely that's got to count for something, right? I mean, you know, we, of course, the, the the wish would be that music's somehow making a study, you know, better and smarter, and you might not have found that. But, yeah, I think about my connotations with study. I don't know about you, Dr. Bytas, but uh, it was a pretty torrid time uh, back in medical school. Um, do you think yeah you know, that's that's potentially an application for this, just knowing that it makes something that many people regard as mundane and stressful and some somewhat more pleasurable?
4: Yeah, absolutely. That's pretty much um, the goal is, you know, again, if we're looking at the student population specifically, people are stressed and they're, um, you know, finding it hard to concentrate. But maybe if they put music on it them in a better mood and that might kind of set them up to, um, you know, do better or um, enjoy it more, you know.
0: Um, in the study, uh, took. A, you meant you're talking about mood and such, but I think you also looked at procrastination. Is that right?
4: Uh, a little bit, um, not not to a huge extent, um, but that that was kind of related to um, this other study that we did, where um, we we ran like a psychoeducation program, um, it, but designed by uh, my supervisor, uh, Professor Genevieve Dingle. That so basically we use kind of the framework for talking about how you can manage your emotions in the kind of academic context and so with that we were talking about you know managing academic anxiety and procrastination and perfectionism and all of these kinds of factors um to sort of work out you know can music be a way of talking about emotions and then from that making you kind of be um, more aware of your emotions and more able to manage them in the kind of stressful uni transition.
0: Right. With, with regard to mood, I'm wondering um, in your work, have you come across or either of your own work or, or that of others that you're familiar with to this question that you know I know I've been asked and ask others, do you put music on to reinforce a mood or do you put music on to change it?
2: Mm. Chicken or eggs? Uh, both,
4: either. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we do both. But um, is there a is there a tendency? And, and 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 in fact, is the premise accurate? I mean, can does do you reinforce your mood with your selection of music? And can you change your mood by your selection of music?
4: Absolutely. You definitely can do both of those things. I think there's uh, not like my specifically but there's definitely work about you know choosing music to kind of maintain a mood that can right. be positive and then also using music as a specific driver for changing your mood
2: uh-huh. mm. dr vitus it's dilemma here i am curious to know about um the mention that panel beta had about uh your work with music psychology and um, helping carers of people living with dementia, um, mm-hmm. I can imagine that could, music is such a powerful, um, both memory tool and as you've spoken to, um, changing mood and help helping mood. So can you talk about uh, what that work with um, people living with dementia is?
4: Yeah, so um, this is my new, uh, my new field. So I've moved from um, from being kind of in a psychology background to being in uh, a field called computer interaction. Um, and basically I'm working with like a team of so people in my field, uh, HCI, and um, a team of music therapists who have kind of designed, it's basically like a learning app. So kind of, you know, it's a nice kind of thread there in terms of I'm really interested in how we can get people use music in different ways and so these music therapists have come up with like a training program um to help errors um because yeah that's a really uh time and uh, yeah so we've been doing some research on whether whether this content in an app form can be useful to people and again kind of drawing on that the power of music listening and um all of the many many benefits it have
0: Dr Vitus, we're fast running out of time. So just before we lose you, um, the other thing that was mentioned to us uh, in the article we received was work that's being done on an evidence-based program called Tuned In, which aims to teach students to ad- identify emotions. How does that, uh, how's that program work?
4: Yeah, so, um, again, I did, like, a pilot of that during my PhD, which I just briefly talked about um, before, and now it's kind of being... Um, expanded out to all undergraduates at UQ, Um, but basically in that we ask people to sort of think about um, how music can be helpful for their emotion, awareness, and relation, so again in this academic context, and we basically ask people to think about um, their emotions in terms of this this two-dimensional model, so if you picture like a plus sign, um, where on the horizontal you've got how positive or negative Um, the emotion is and then on the vertical you've got how high or low energy that is and so we get people to think about okay well if you were you know it's the night before a stressful exam how are you feeling plot it on that graph and then think about good music be helpful maybe not maybe it does maybe it doesn't depends on um exactly what uh the situation is but how could? what would you do to sort of help um to manage
0: Right, right. It sounds fascinating. And good luck to the uh, UQ students. That's uh, something that could actually reveal a lot uh, to themselves. And and perhaps that might even, uh, with success, be expanded out across campuses around Australia.
4: Yeah, I would absolutely love for that in one day.
0: Fantastic. Hey, you've been really generous with your time, Dr. Virus, and we've had a great conversation, uh, learned a lot. Thank you so much for being with us on Radiotherapy.
4: No worries. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Have a great Sunday. Bye for now.
4: Thank you. Bye.
0: We've been speaking with Dr. Diana Vidas, who's a music psychologist uh, researching the relationship we have with music when we're studying or trying to focus or manage uh, emotions.
3: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how.
2: We have Professor Danielle Matza joining us this this morning, Um, and Professor Matza is the head of the Department of General Practice at Monash University and a nationally and internationally recognised leader in implementation of research and knowledge translation in the general practice setting. Professor Matza was recently recognised as a member of the Order of Australia in the 2023 King's Birthday Awards for her significant service to medicine and to medical research, particularly in the area of women's health. Professor Mutsa has made significant uh, ongoing contributions to advance general practice and primary health care in Australia uh, and in the field of women's sexual and reproductive health. And as a proponent of evidence-based quality improvement through guideline development and implementation, Professor Mutsa leads the NHMRC Centre of Research Excellence in Sexual and Reproductive Health for Women in Primary Care which is known as SPHERE, which aims to improve the quality, safety and capacity of primary health care services to achieve better health outcomes in the women's sexual and reproductive health space. Thank you so much, Professor Mutsa, for joining us on Triple R's Radiotherapy this morning.
5: Thanks for having me. I think I need to change that bio. It's a bit uh, <laughs> wordy and long.
2: No. We're <laughs> so glad to have you with us. Um, firstly, I'd like to congratulate you on, on your recent Member of the Order of Australia award last month. Uh, could you tell uh, us a bit about you. your career journey to date and what got you into medicine and then into uh, your work in women's health?
5: Sure. A uh, bit of a long, long journey. Uh, uh, my my dad always told me I should do medicine and I was uh, a very obedient daughter, I think. <laughs> That's <laughs> what t- took me there in the first place. I, I actually... Uh, had to think about it and, and thought it was um, going to be a very rewarding career, and uh, it certainly it certainly has been that. I, I studied at Monash and uh, uh, did an elective with a very inspiring uh, gynaecologist, Wendy Savage, in London. And Wendy uh, worked in the East End with uh, with a patient population that was mainly um, Bangladeshi uh, migrant women. And she just uh, blew my mind about the way she approached uh, medicine. She, she kind of cut through all the dogma and, um, and was really patient-centred. And, um, and uh, I think she was quite influential in steering me in the direction that I've taken.
2: So that's taken you into the, the area of uh, women's and reproductive health in particular, and um, your current work at, at Sphere, the Centre of Research Excellence in Sexual and Reproductive Health for Women in Primary Care. Can you tell us a bit about some of the projects and the works happening at Sphere?
5: Yeah, so I guess Sphere uh, is based on the on the premise and and, and knowledge that um, uh, women's reproductive reproduction. Um, and their ability to um, choose the number of children they want and to have them when they want them is kind of fundamental to the trajectory of a woman's life. And um, so we, we are researching uh, uh, areas such as uh, preconception care and, and, and planning a pregnancy to optimise your pregnancy outcomes, contraception. Uh, and abortion and these are all very intertwined because um you know you need contra- good contraception to be able to plan uh the pregnancies that you you have or, or or plan not to have a pregnancy and um and contraception sometimes fails or for other reasons women may may need to have an abortion and and so they're really um they're very integrated and and uh and we came at this uh, uh, with a vision that, uh, you know, for general practice and primary care, if you really want to deliver high-quality care to, to women um, in, in, your, in your population, in your locality, you really have to provide this, this, these kinds of services in a very comprehensive way to, to meet women's needs. Absolutely.
2: And that, I guess, brings us to um, the recent Senate inquiry into reproductive health care in Australia, which saw the Senate committee make about 36 recommendations, all of which received bipartisan support, and I read the, your comment that the Senate inquiry has highlighted the very profound and disturbing inequities and sometimes complete lack of access to sexual and reproductive health issues that exist in Australia. Access to reproductive healthcare has been described as a post a postcode lottery at times. Could you speak to what the barriers to access for this type of care are in Australia?
5: Yeah, so um, I think the uh, the first thing to be aware of, like like other areas of healthcare, but perhaps much more pronounced uh, in the areas of contraception and abortion. The further away you are from a, a big metropolitan city, the harder it is. Uh, to to access these kinds of services, and uh, we know, uh, for example, that currently only about ten percent of GPs uh, are providers of medical abortion, and medical abortion is um, uh, is is a means of of uh, of having an abortion uh, whereby you don't have to go into hospital, you don't have to have a surgical procedure. Um, you, you, you take medication and uh, it, it basically induces uh, a miscarriage, and, and that has to occur before nine weeks of a of a of a pregnancy in Australia. That's that's the current uh, regulation. So so women are very time pressed to try and find practitioners who can deliver this kind of care, and the fact that only ten percent of GPs around Australia deliver it um, makes it very very difficult. Because it's not really transparent where those GPs are located, and and things like abortion and contraception remain very stigmatised in our community, and there are a lot of GPs who, who who may want to provide this kind of service, but are but are, are concerned about uh, how how um, the, their community might respond. Uh, uh, concerned about retribution or, or other consequences, so so there are a lot of barriers: stigma, uh, you know, uh, pro, pro, providers, lack of training for, for primary care, the cost uh, to the to the to the woman, um, affordability is a is a real issue, and out-of-pocket expenses not only for abortion but also for contraception.
1: Professor uh, Vion, uh, Dr Chow here. Um, I've got to say, you know, as a GP myself, uh, it's actually quite uh, shocking and even a little bit embarrassing to hear that that number is just 10%, I think you said, of GPs who are providing medical um, terminations of, of pregnancy. You did mention that maybe some of these GPs you know, uh, fear a bit of retribution, uh, etc. but can you actually speak a bit more to that? Because as much as there are structural changes that perhaps need to occur, the on... on uh, first glance, it would seem like, well, this seems like an easy one to fix. Why can't we lift that number from 10% to, you know, 40%? What, what, what do you think are the barriers there to more GPs offering medical terminations of pregnancy with these, you know, medications that are going to be, in theory, quite accessible to people?
5: Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting it's a, an interesting problem because it's, it's kind of a legacy of where we've come from. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, abortion uh, was always considered out of scope of general practice because it was it was the only methods we had in the past were surgical methods, and not many. G, you know, some rural GPs, but not many uh, other GPs uh, uh, did a lot of surgery in in the, in a hospital uh, setting. But with the advent of medical abortion, uh, which just is. Uh, a process which just involves, you know, a consultation, uh, you know, checking checking uh, that the woman has no contraindications, making sure you know the gestation of the pregnancy, prescribing the pills, giving advice about what to expect and following up. That's as simple as it, as it is. You know, this squarely belongs in, in general practice and can be done in general practice. And general pra- general practitioners know their patients the best. You know, uh, my, my co- a colleague of, uh, who's an abortion provider once told me, you know, GPs know the dark corners of women's lives and, uh, you know, are, are frequently, you know, consulted about issues such as violence and abuse and, uh, and other issues that, um, you know, take place in relationships. So GPs are, are ideal providers of, of medical abortion, and women want their GPs to deliver these services. But if, but if GPs haven't seen it in action, if, they, if, they're, if their supervisor, when they've trained, uh, doesn't deliver these services, then, then they've not been in an environment where they could learn about it. And, and, and our GPs train, first of all, in hospital rotations as hospital residents, and then out in the community in general practice. And and when they're in hospital, they don't see it either because uh, not many abortions are, per, are performed uh, uh, in hospitals anymore. And it's all been pushed out into the private sector. Uh, and and the private sector is not where our primary care practitioners train. So, so if we're going to build workforce capability, if we're going to expand the numbers of GPs, uh, who who provide these services the procedure has to be done both surgical and medical in places where primary care practitioners train and uh, and you know the government is becoming slowly more aware of this issue uh, so so it's it's a bit of a complex problem but slowly slowly we're moving towards um, towards getting getting the training uh, in in place and
2: uh, and accessible, but, uh, but we need to work on it a lot more, Professor Natsa. Listen, um, yeah, there's obviously a lot of room for building the workforce capacity to provide these services. That's one aspect of um, one of the recommendations made in the in the Senate inquiry. Um, can you speak to some of what, what some of the other recommendations? There's about three dozen. Um, what other suggestions yeah. and um, um, advice has been raised to, to to better improve this?
5: Yes, so workforce capacity building was certainly recognised. Another major theme in the recommendations was around um, uh, deregulation and uh, uh, allowing uh, our health care practitioners to to work to an expanded scope of practice. So internationally in countries uh, like uh, Sweden, for example, uh, it's midwives who deliver medical abortion. Um, and uh, the World Health Organization um, actually endorses nurses uh, uh, providing um, a whole range of abortion services. So, um, this is something that the Senate inquiry recommendations are uh, focused on. And I think with the upcoming ex- um, expanded scope of practice review uh, that the government has committed to. Uh, I hope that this issue will be addressed uh, in in that setting and that we will see nurses and midwives delivering this service uh, very soon. Um, other other areas were focused really on affordability of things like uh, contraception. And again, internationally, uh, countries like France, Ireland, Sweden, um, uh, the UK, uh, abortion is free, uh, or at no—you uh, can say—at no cost to the patient at the point of care. So they don't—they um, don't. In those countries, women don't have uh, consultation costs to pay for. They don't have to pay for um, uh, a, a prescription. And there is a much wider variety of contraceptive agents that are available to women. And in Australia, for some reason, we have quite a limited range, for example, of, of products. We don't have patches. Uh, we don't have uh, Press, uh, which is a, a, a form of uh, progesterone only contraception. And women experience a lot of out-of-pocket costs to, to get the most effective forms of contraception um, such as IUDs, because they're paying for consultation costs and insertion fees. And and Medicare doesn't really um, uh, provide a a big enough rebate. So there was a lot of focus on on this issue of affordability and how that might work um, in the Australian context and how we can get a wider range of contraceptive products so that everybody uh, is able to find uh, something uh, that suits them. Uh, and and there are there were other areas that we also covered, like the need to do a lot more research on the issue of reproductive coercion, uh, which is um, where uh, you know women uh, 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 experience uh, coercion from their partners or family members or other people um, 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 that um, make them uh, terminate a pregnancy or 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 not allow them to use contraception, and uh, this is an area that we're recognising as being uh, a lot more prominent, uh, particularly when we see women in the general practice setting. And then, of course, there's also uh, a big focus on uh, education and improving uh, sexual health education, um, both in schools and and amongst the the general public lots of
2: work to do we have plenty of work to do and i suppose in that uh, vein change doesn't usually happen overnight and um, of course many of the recommendations in the inquiry will take many levels of systems change to implement and time for recommendations to translate into into changes in services but just uh if we can cast our eyes to our crystal ball and look 12 months from now what What tangible changes would you like to see in twelve months' time in the way that reproductive health care is managed in your local uh, GP clinic, um, hopefully as a result of of this inquiry?
5: well i'd i'd hope I'd hope that women uh, will feel more confident uh, in approaching their GPs and actually uh, getting uh, um, good advice uh, either about uh, contraception, or pregnancy planning, or or abortion, uh, and that they are. And if the GP doesn't currently deliver those services, I'm um, I'm hoping that in 12 months' time they will have taken active steps um, uh, to become to become providers, or to become at least aware of more aware of where those services can be quickly accessed. And I think one of the, the quickest things that's probably going to get up across the line is um, uh, there was a recommendation uh, for a national hotline to be established uh, for uh, for women to uh, access, uh, so they could call uh, a confidential line and receive information about where uh, services exist, so that they could rapidly navigate to them. And of course, we're blessed in Victoria because we. We have the one eight hundred My Options uh, number. So, if your listeners um, don't know about it, is kind of the the gold standard in information provision and and set up um, around sexual and reproductive health uh, information and and services. And and I highly recommend that uh, uh, your listeners uh, Google it's 800 my options and, and have a look and, and let and let their family and friends know about the existence of that information line uh, which is just an excellent resource
2: Wow I must admit I wasn't familiar with that um, hotline being an available service and what a brilliant service to have in Victoria and hopefully uh, it's expanded nationally
0: In fact the listeners yeah. just texted in with that very piece that very same piece of information which is fabulous. Right.
2: Yeah, right. Well, that's fantastic. Um, Dr. uh, Matza, thank you so much for your time. Unfortunately, our our one hour is wrapping up very quickly this morning, which is an awful shame. Um, But I want to say thank you so much for giving up time on your Sunday morning to speak with our audience. Um, It's been um, a really, really important chat, and um, hopefully we can have you back with some updates in 12 months' time.
5: (laughs) Yeah, I'd be delighted. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you so much.
3: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how.
0: This brings us to the tail end of radiotherapy for another edition here on 3 Triple R. Just leaving us enough time to thank our two fabulous guests, Dr Vitus, our music psychologist, talking about the relationship we have with music and learning and studying and mood regulation. And we've just heard from Dr Mazza talking to us uh, about women's health and reproductive health, in particular on the back of a recent Senate inquiry. Fabulous guests, one and both. A big thank you to Dr Sharma and uh, to Dr Tulema for your accompany uh, this morning. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.